1821, Mexico, after fighting for 11 years, won its independence from Spain. And then in, um, can't do the math off the top of my head because I completely forgot the number, but in 1835, Mexico found itself in another civil war. So after winning its independence, it went through several different governments trying to figure out what was going to work best. And um, in the meantime, a lot of its bordering territories that were far away from its central government had a lot of independence. And um, one of those regions was known as Texas um, or Texas for those um, who don't speak Spanish. And... um, And Texas uh, enjoyed a lot of independence, a lot of freedom. And then in the early 1830s, a government change occurred, and the government decided that they wanted to um, exercise their their authority throughout all of their territory, throughout all the realm of Mexico. Well, the Texans didn't quite like that. And so on October 2nd, 1835, the first shots of the Texas Revolution were fired and um, which then launched Mexico into another civil war. And um, there were many different conflicts, but on February 24th, 1836, uh, the armies of Mexico, led by Santa Ana, marched into a small little town that had a small little garrison, and this town is known as San Antonio, and the little garrison is known as the Alamo. And it Small as it was at the time, it was a very important place because it was very strategic in where it was located. So the Texans had to hold this place in order to maintain their territory. And Mexico needed to take this town over in order to um, push the Texans back, the Texas army back. And so on February 24th, Santa Ana's army marched in and surrounded this garrison and laid siege to the Alamo for 13 days. During that 13-day period, the Texans that were holding it numbered 150, but they were able to sneak messages out to, um, to other towns, and they managed to get um, word back to the army, to one of the main armies in Texas, saying, please send help, and they said, hold out as long as you can, help is coming. By the time 13 days passed on March 6, the numbers of the Texans inside the Alamo grew to 200. Um, but it wasn't enough. That morning on March 6, 1836, the armies of Santa Ana marched in, and after a fierce battle that lasted 90 minutes, Santa Ana had killed all 250 or all 200 of the Texans that defended the Alamo. From there, he launched uh, another attack against another town, and uh, that town, another 300 Texans were defeated and then precisely executed. Um, after they were captured. And this things looked really bad for the Texans at this point, to where a lot of the citizens were fleeing to Louisiana. The last um, army of the Texan army at this point, along with its provisional government led by Sam Houston, was following the rear of this mass exodus to Louisiana. Santa Ana, in a last-ditch effort to try to end the revolution once and for all, sent its army Mark going after the Army of Texas. And on April 21st, 1836, Sam Houston decided we're going to take our last chances and attack Santa Ana and see if we can't pull victory out of defeat. 
So that day uh, against the banks of the San Jacinto River in Texas, Sam Houston led uh, his army to attack Santa Ana. And with cries of, remember the Alamo, God in Texas, the army of Texas in 18 minutes completely defeated the army of Santa Ana. So with that battle cry, they won. And the very next day, they successfully captured Santa Ana and the Republic of Texas was born. So you are now well-versed in the history of Texas. So um, you can all go to Texas and it's a great state if you haven't been there. I'm from Texas, so I love it. But the battle cry, remember the Alamo, is a battle cry that is near and dear to the heart of every Texan. So, but that's not the only battle cry that we have throughout history. Throughout all of history, there are different battle cries. There are different difficulties and struggles that a people or a nation have faced, and they look to something to rally the troops, rally the morale. And in the case of the Alamo, it was remember those who have fallen. We look to them, we fight for them, and we, and we remember them. I have heard many a sermon throughout my life on Hebrews chapter 11. And um, when you read chapter 12, verse 1, when it starts off, therefore we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, many people take that and use Hebrews 11 as our cry of the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. Remember the cloud of witnesses that we have around us. So the question I asked this morning, is that appropriate to use Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 as our battle cry? Is it important that we say, remember those who have fallen, remember this great cloud of witnesses? So that's the question I pose to you this morning. Is that appropriate? So we will dive into Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 32, and we'll read through chapter 12, verse 2, and we will ponder that question, is that appropriate to remember the great cloud of, cloud of witnesses or not? So I invite you all to stand for the reading of God's word out of respect for, for God's word as we speak it this morning. The author of Hebrews writes and says in verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We will end there. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, as we dive into your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would be with us, that your spirit would speak through me, God, that you would be glorified, you would stir us up to know you more, to love you more, and to faithfully be obedient, God, that the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted this morning, God. For your glory, we are here, and we gather together in your name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So it is very easy when we come to this passage to preach um, a sermon something along these lines. If you have faith, you too can move mountains. Just look at the faith of these people. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice, attained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. If you have faith, you can accomplish anything. You have people that are coming against you all the time. If you have faith, you can overcome the world. You can rise up. If you're struggling in your work, you can have faith and God will bless you in that. If you're struggling in relationships, just have faith and God will bless you. And it would be so easy to preach a very long sermon all about that. And if I did that, please excommunicate me Um, because that is not the purpose of this passage. But that is often how people interpret this, and this is, that is often how people preach this passage. But if you notice in verse 32, the names of the people that the author is citing, and this is something that we've already been talking about all throughout um, Hebrews 11. Each one of these people, starting with Gideon and going through the judges and then David, Samuel, and the prophets, they were all flawed people some of them more so than others. So Gideon, he doubted God and put God to the test over and over again, saying, okay, God, um, if the fleece is wet and all the ground around it is dry, then I'll believe you. He wakes up in the morning, the fleece is wet and the ground around it is dry. Okay, okay, okay. Now, if the, if the fleece is dry and the ground around it is wet, then I'll believe you. He kept putting God to the test. And eventually he said, okay, God, I will follow you. But then if you keep reading in Judges after his great victory of leading 300 men against an entire army with nothing but clay pots and torches, what great faith it takes to march on an army in the middle of the night with nothing but clay pots and torches because God said so. God says, you've got too many men, whittle it down. You still have too many, whittle it down. 300, that's what I'm going to use. God, you're crazy. But Gideon had faith in God. And he did that. But then afterwards, he, it looked like he walked away from the faith because he did some pretty atrocious things. We could say the same thing for um, Samson and Jephthah of David. David, the man after God's own heart, had an affair, got a woman pregnant, killed her husband to try to hide it, to try to cover it over. I mean, this man after God's own heart, I mean, he had some pretty flawed characteristics of himself. 
But every single one of them did. We've already talked about Abraham. We've talked about Sarah. We've talked about Isaac and Jacob and everybody else throughout Hebrews 11. Every single one of them was flawed. And so anybody that says, we look to them and see how great they are, they're missing something because these are flawed people who are being commended for their faith. Through their faith, they accomplished these great works, even though they were sinners, even though they were imperfect, even though they were broken people, and they did some pretty terrible things, but they had faith. And yes, their faith accomplished a lot. God said, I want you to lead out an army to conquer my enemies. Okay, I will do it. I want you to pray regardless of what the king says, regardless of what happens to you, and I will protect you. Okay, God, so I'm going to close the mouths of lions for you, even though you're thrown in because you honored me and you were faithful to me. And over and over again throughout the entire Old Testament, we see men and women who had faith in God, but men and women of flawed character. But they were not commended because of their character. They were commended because of their faith. But notice that even though we can lean into that and say, look at what their faith accomplished, we have an issue if we do that because that same faith also resulted in the second half of verse 35. Yes, women received back their dead by resurrection, but some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, what if we took that same idea? If you have faith, you can accomplish all these other things. What if we turned it and said, if you have faith, you too can suffer and die for Christ. If you have faith, you can be beaten. You can be insulted. You can be imprisoned. Who wants Jesus now? No one? All right. So, but what is the difference in this? We've got one extreme over here where people with faith are accomplishing great things, but yet people with faith are suffering great things. How does that play out? How does that work? It works because it is not their own personal faith that is accomplishing these things. Notice in verse 32. Nope, verse 33. He says, all of these people who through faith did all of these things. So all of these things came about through their faith. So we've already addressed, we've been talking about faith for the last several weeks. We sung about faith this morning. Our liturgy was so embedded, embroiled with faith, um, was just weaved in and out of our liturgy this morning. Our faith is not from us. Paul says in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one will boast. So the faith that these men and women had that led them to accomplish great things and that led them to suffer great things was not from themselves. That was a gift of God. And that faith was not grounded and rooted in themselves. That faith was grounded and rooted in the promises of God. God said to Gideon, I will be with you. And Gideon eventually said, I believe you. God said to Jephthah, I will deliver this enemy into your hands. And Jephthah said, I will believe you and I will go out and I will fight. Over and over again, the men and women throughout the Old Testament, God gave them promises and they said, I believe you. And I believe what you say is true. Therefore, I will be obedient. And so it was that same faith that led them to accomplish great things for the kingdom of God. And it was that same faith that led them to suffer great things for the kingdom of God because that faith was rooted and grounded in something beyond themselves. I worked at a bank in Louisville and um, Mike, we had this discussion on Tuesday as we were walking. It's the Kentucky Derby. Um, we were talking about that and we both forgot the name Kentucky. You know that horse race thing in Louisville that happens? What? Uh, so I was like, I know the Oaks and I know the Preakness and oh, what was Kentucky Derby. So during the Kentucky Derby is huge in Louisville and uh, one of my coworkers, uh, well, they, they do this little pot. So you put a dollar in, you draw one of the horses that's going to race. And if your horse wins, then you get the whole pot. And I was like, I'm not going to do that because I lose whenever I gamble. So I'm not going to do that. She's like, well, you might win. They kept pushing me. Like, it's a dollar. Fine. I'll throw it in. I'll grab my hat and she, I'll grab my horse number out or whatever. And she's like, you just need to have faith. It might win. Faith. Faith in what? Faith in the horse? That's going to let me down. And it did. It didn't win. <laughs> so faith isn't just this nebulous concept that's there. If you just have faith in something like a horse race, just have faith and your horse might win, people wouldn't conquer kingdoms. People wouldn't whittle their army of thousands down to just 300 and then attack the opposing army with clay pots and torches. That's crazy. That's insane. People don't do that just because of this nebulous concept of faith. Faith must be grounded and rooted in something, and it must be grounded and rooted in something great and in something that is trustworthy, something that's not going to collapse. What would cause people to say in the latter half of verse 35, who are being tortured, if you surrender, if you give up, if you recant, we'll let you go. What would cause somebody to say, no, kill me, take me, I will not recant? What would do that? Great faith in something beyond themselves. Great faith in someone who is faithful and trustworthy. That faith is the same faith whether you're conquering kingdoms or whether you're being tortured to death. It is that faith in someone. And their faith was in God's promises. And what's even more astounding than this is verse 39. And all of these, though commended through their faith, 
did not receive what was promised. So this is kind of the capstone. This is the, the end um, bookmark, book holder on verse 13 in Hebrews 11, where the author says in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. What great faith it took. God said, I am going to do a mighty work, but you're not going to see it yet. This is not going to happen in your lifetime. And they said, I still trust in you. And I will still take my minuscule army out and conquer kingdoms. I will still enforce justice, even though everybody around me says, no, 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 don't do that. But I will still enforce justice. I will still suffer and be tortured for the sake of the promises of God, because something better is coming. There is something grander out there that is coming. I don't know what it is yet. I can't see clearly, but this I know that one day there will be a child who will be born to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I trust in that promise. When is this going to come? Not for several hundred more years doesn't matter. I still trust that it's going to happen, and I look forward to that. So all of these people who are commended for their faith did not receive the promises of God. Yes, in one sense, they did have the promises of God. They did have, God said, I will deliver this army into your hands, and he did. So he proved himself faithful. But yet there were more promises to come, which date all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when God said, when, when sin entered the world, God made a promise, and he said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The one who tempted Adam and Eve, the one who brought about and was an instrument of bringing about the downfall of humanity, he will be crushed by the seed of the woman, and we longingly wait for that day, for that serpent crusher to come in and win the final victory. And as time went on, more and more promises were revealed, and more and more people placed their faith in that coming promise that one day a Messiah would come and deliver us. One day all of this will end, and we look forward to that day. They didn't have that yet, but it was enough that they stepped out in faith and accomplished great things and suffered great things because they trusted in the one who gave that promise. Verse 40, they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. So God delayed in giving that promise. The author of Hebrews is writing around circa 60-ish AD, give or take 10-ish years, um, 
And so he is writing to people who are going through persecution. He is probably writing when Nero is rising up in Rome and taking Christians and hanging them um, on crosses and lighting them on fire to light the streets of Rome at night. This is the kind of persecution that the people are probably facing, that this author's readers are probably facing. And he says, these people did all of these things through faith and did not receive the promise because God provided something better for us. And that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So their perfection, the culmination of all of these promises were delayed. And yet these people remained faithful. These people continued to trust in God. Yes, they sinned. Yes, they fell. Yes, they did some pretty awful things. But they are still commended because they placed their faith and their trust in the, in the one who controls everything. And they are commended not for their own strength and not for their own work. And yet, all of that was delayed because God had a plan that in the fullness of time, His Son, which is, as we've been saying since the start of Hebrews, is the better sacrifice, is the better priest, is the better king, is the better servant. Christ would come one day, and that is when everything would find its completion in Christ. So they waited until God's perfect timing when everything would be finalized and everything would be wrapped up. And because of that, and therefore, we have such a great cloud of witnesses that are around us, as the author says, so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We can pause here and we can easily say, remember the Alamo here. We can easily say, remember this cloud of witnesses that are around us. Look to them as your example. Look to them and follow them. Follow their lead. Look at what they all did. Look at their faith and trust that what they did, you too can do. It can be so easy to fall into that. But that is not where the author of Hebrews stops. The author of Hebrews moves on to verse 2. Run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus. We don't look to this great cloud of witnesses. This great cloud of witnesses is not here to be a shining example of how we are to live our lives. This great cloud of witnesses surrounds us, testifying to the truth of the reality that it is worth it. It is worth holding on to the promises of God. It is worth running against an enemy when God says run against the enemy. It's worth it. Facing down that fear is worth it when God says it is because God is trustworthy. It is worth hanging tightly to Jesus Christ who will deliver us. It is worth giving our lives up. It's worth suffering. It's worth torment. It's worth torture. It's worth death. It's worth being cut in two and being lit on fire, being beaten and mocked. It's worth losing all of your worldly possessions and wandering around in the desert with nothing on your back but the skins of goats and sheep. It's worth losing everything. It's worth having your wife 
walk out on you. It's worth having your husband kick you out of the house. It's worth having your parents disown you. It's worth having your children mock you. It's worth it because the promises are true. That great cloud of witnesses surrounds us, testifying to the fact that it is true. We don't look to them. We look to Christ. Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That is a whole other sermon in and of itself that we don't have time. I'll let Denton dive into that next week if he so wants to. But Christ, we look to him who founded our faith, who's the author of our faith. As Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that isn't of you. Your faith isn't of you. It is a gift of God. And so we look to Jesus, who is the author of that gift. We look to him and holding on to his promise that there is an end. There is a coming kingdom. As the author said, verse 13 through 16, that all of these people considered themselves strangers and exiles in this land. They didn't consider this land as their land. I don't belong here. I'm a sojourner. I'm an exile. I'm a pilgrim just passing through. The guys are going to be reading the Pilgrim's Progress um, or already starting to read the Pilgrim's Progress. And it is a journey of this man, Christian, who is seeking the kingdom, the greater kingdom, and fleeing the city of destruction. And it is our story in Christ. We flee the city of destruction and we seek a greater kingdom. Over and over again, you will probably hear us talk about the already not yet kind of concept, and that is the same as it is now, as it was for those of the Old Testament. They had the promises of God which weren't already fulfilled. We have Christ. We have the completed work of the cross. It is finished. It is done. It is completed. There's nothing else that we need to do as the author of Hebrews elaborates on in Hebrews chapter 9. It's done. There's nothing else you need to do. Look to Christ He did it. He accomplished it all. It's finished. Look to him. But there's still more yet to come. Right now, we see in a mirror dimly. We see in a glass dimly. It's not a crystal clear image because we still suffer. We still face persecution. We still face hardships. And it may not even be persecution. It just may be that life sometimes stinks. Life just is that way. It's not persecution when it doesn't rain for 13 months and the crops don't grow and people go hungry. That's not persecution. That's just suffering. That's part of the fact that we are in a fallen and broken world. But our faith isn't going to make it rain. Our faith isn't going to cause crops to shoot up out of dry ground. Our faith isn't going to do that because our faith isn't in us. The world says, if you have faith, you can do that. If you have faith, you can do amazing things. Look into yourself, see into yourself, find faith. But that's not the point. The point is to look to the coming kingdom, to Jesus Christ and what is to come. And it will come. And that is our hope. That is why men and women from the Old Testament all the way through today will say, I will not recant. You can kill me. You can cut me in two. You can saw me in half, whatever you need to do, but I will not recant because I am looking to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of my faith, and I'm holding on to him.
What can you do to me? As, as Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If we live, we live, we live for the glory of Jesus Christ. And if they kill us, praise be to God, we're going to heaven. If they mock us, praise be to God, I don't seek their approval. I don't seek the world's approval. I don't seek the world's glory. Lindsay and I, we love to watch um, The Voice um, uh, occasionally. And on there, it's all of these people seeking the approval. All of those game shows, all of those contestant shows where the audience can phone in and vote for who they want to. You are seeking the approval of thousands, if not millions of people to vote for you, to see you and push you on. But as Christians, we don't care. We don't seek the approval of people. We seek the approval of our God. And as it says in Hebrews 16, that therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They were faithful to his promises, and he prepared a city for them. R.C. Sproul, in his, in his book, What is Faith?, says, If the church is ever to be the church triumphant, she must first be the church militant. She must be willing to enter into a spiritual war, one that could cost us our very lives. However, if we look at church history, we can see that the gospel radiated with its greatest clarity and brightness in those eras when the proponents of the faith spent most of their time in prison. But... We enjoy the comforts of this world so much that we would rather have them than to live like those who were pilgrims and sojourners on the earth. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that says it is worth forsaking everything for the promises of God because they are true and he is faithful. It is worth it. That is why people every day die for the sake of the cross, for the sake of Jesus Christ. They are still persecuted to this very day. 2008, in Saudi Arabia, a young woman came to faith in Christ, and her brother was one of the Islamic teachers in the city, a prominent man, and when he found out, he locked her in her room um, for days, hoping that that would bring her about and bring her senses around. So, what did she do? She typed up a heartfelt prayer and posted it on the internet. And it was a beautiful, long um, prayer calling for Saudi Arabia to repent and follow Christ. Four hours after she posted that, her brother came in, and when she refused to recant, he killed her. Over and over, that goes on. Why? It's not faith in and of themselves. It's faith in the promises of God which is why somebody would do something. She knew that she would probably die if she posted that, but she did it anyway because she wanted people to hear. 2012, two men in Vietnam came to faith in Christ, and over the next two years, they shared the gospel with their family, with their coworkers, with their friends, with their neighbors, until by the end of that two-year period, the entire village where they lived confessed Jesus Christ. Praise God. That wasn't enough for them. They wanted everyone else to hear. So they went out and they shared the gospel in other villages around. 
And in one village, the police arrested them and told them to stop. And when they refused to stop sharing the gospel, for two days they beat them and beat them and tortured them. And then on the third day, they dragged them out into the middle of the village and then called all the villagers around, who then for the next three hours hit them with sticks, threw stones at them, kicked them, punched them, spit on them, mocked them, insulted them until they were just completely deformed. One guy lost sight in his eye. And they, after that, they let them go, sent them back, and they made it back home, spent seven days in the hospital before they were recovered enough to go about their, their normal lives. During that time in the hospital, they got a letter from the village that said, if you ever come back here, we will kill you. But there were believers in that village. So one of the evangelists calls them up and says, listen, we're going to come back and see you because there's more that you need to know. We want to teach you more about God's word. Now, we'll be smart about it this time. We'll come secretly. We'll come quietly, but we're still going to come. What would drive somebody to do that? They just escaped with their life, and yet they're willing to go back. Why? Because the promises are true. There's a pastor in China who spent a total of 19 years in prison because he wouldn't be quiet about the gospel. He'd share the gospel, they'd lock him up, they'd release him. He'd share the gospel, they'd lock him up, they'd release him. After being locked up for seven years, um, during that seven-year period, um, different people tried to get him released, and they never did release him. And after he was released, he said, I praise God that you failed in your attempt to get me um, out of prison. Because if you had gotten me out of prison, there wouldn't be a church in this prison anymore. They locked him up to silence him. And so what did he do? He planted a church in the prison. <laughs> He's like, you can't, you can't silence me. I'm not going to stop because Christ is worth it. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that testify that the promises of God are worth it. And so we look to Jesus. Jesus is our battle cry. Not the Alamo, not the saints and those who have gone before us. We don't look to them. There are plenty of people that look to them. There are plenty of people that look to the saints. There are plenty of people who say, I still talk to my mom or my dad or my grandfather who's in heaven, and we still have these conversations, and they give me strength, and they give me hope, and they help me out. We don't do that. We look to Christ because it's Christ in who we have faith, and it's Christ in whom the promises of God are true. So as we go out into the world, we don't fear what the world will do to us. We don't feel the humiliation that we might feel when we share the gospel at work. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So that is his commandment. But then here's his promise. And surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. The promises of God are true. And Christ promised that he would be with us until the very end. What more can you ask for? This world has nothing to offer us. It has nothing to give us other than ash and dust. Because at the end of the day, when judgment comes, it will all be burned away. And the only thing that will stand are the promises of God. And if you find yourself clinging to the promises of God and you look at Jesus Christ, you too can conquer kingdoms. You too can suffer. And it's okay 
One last story from, um, I forget the country where, where this is from, but it is out in East Asia. Uh, there was a guy who came to faith in Christ and um, started sharing the gospel and um, helped start a little Bible uh, college and, and his community. And he went out to an island to share Christ with um, so a Muslim island, an animistic island where they mixed spirit worship and Islam and other things together and the occult that was all blended together. And he went out there to share the gospel and was killed for it. He had led his mom and his sister to faith in Christ. And then 42 people from his community started going to that Bible college because they too wanted to know more about the gospel. And then seven other people, including his sister, said, we're going to go back to where he was killed and we're going to take the gospel to them. And the mom said to the sister, aren't you afraid of dying? And her response was, why would I be afraid of dying? What is death? So what is death to us? It is release. It is escape. We get to go be with Jesus Christ in heaven. But as Paul said, for me to live is Christ. And so we don't seek death. We don't run out looking for it. We seek Christ and we look to Christ and we look to be obedient to Christ's commands. And so we take the gospel to the nations. We tell our coworkers, we tell our families, we tell our friends, we tell our neighbors, and we look to Christ as our assurance. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What is there to fear? There is absolutely nothing. Let's pray.